prior to this derailment, I think a lot of people would see trains in their neighborhood or trains near where they live and not think too much about it. You know, it's just train going by and there's train cars. Now, at least in Ohio, when people see a train, and particularly a train near where they live, they're starting to think, I wonder what it's carrying. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued in the Sled. Well, on February 3rd, a Norfolk Southern freight train carrying hazardous materials derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, starting a fire that spewed toxic fumes into the air and some of the water driving surrounding residents out of their homes. Since then, the United States Environmental Protection Agency has issued a legally binding notice ordering Norfolk Southern to handle and pay for all necessary cleanup after this freight train derailment led to an intentional release of vinyl chloride. So what could be the long-term impact on residents? What about the air and the soil and the water? And what needs to change in our laws to prevent another environmental disaster like this from happening again on our railroads? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be discussing the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, and the potential environmental legal issues that could stem from this disaster. And to help us better understand this issue, we're joined today by David Rack. He's a professor of law at Ohio Northern University. David's research interests include environmental law, including species protection and natural resources law. He's also the faculty advisor to the Moot Court Program at the College of Law. Welcome to the show, David. Uh, Glad to be here, Craig. Thank you. So we're here to talk a little bit about what happened in East Palestine. Give us an overview of what happened on fe- back on February 3rd, now almost a month ago. Right. So on that date, uh, in the evening, close to 9 o'clock, a Norfolk Southern Railway train was going uh, through the town on the railroad, and they had a derailment. Uh, approximately three dozen cars derailed, and as it turned out, 11 of those cars were carrying hazardous materials. At the time of the derailment and the cars going off the rail, uh, fires started at the site of the derailment immediately upon derailment. Emergency responders were notified, local as well as federal, and they arrived on the scene. There was some confusion at first in terms of the contents of the cars. Norfolk provided then to the responders uh, information about materials on the cars. And it turned out that there were 11 of the derailed cars that did contain hazardous materials. The first responders assessed the situation. Fires continued to burn off and on for a a couple of days. After a couple of days, it was determined that one of the derailed cars with vinyl chloride had an internal temperature that was increasing. And there was concern because vinyl chloride is uh, combustible. There was concern that it might uh, heat up and uh, spontaneously then explode, which would send the shrapnel from the the car itself, the metal of the car itself, in all directions. And as a result of that, after consultation with various agencies and the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, the determination was made to create a trench nearby, dig a trench nearby, and release the material from the five vinyl chloride cars, including the one that was heating up, and then 
uh, burn off that vinyl chloride after it ended up in the trench. So was this a bare dirt trench or did they put any kind of liner there? I don't think they had time to put a liner there. That's my understanding. And in particular, because they were going to burn it, I'm not sure how effective a liner would have been. This is an area in a small town, East Palestine, Ohio, but it was actually right in town. Within a thousand feet of the side of the derailment, there was some industrial area, some commercial and business area, and some residential area, all within that proximity to the derailment. A number of news and obviously uh, uh, photographers from news sites captured the plume of black smoke from the controlled uh, venting and burning of the vinyl chloride, which was pretty impressive. It And it burned for almost two days. So it went up in the air. It, it made a very impressive dark black plume. Um, residents later reported they could smell like burning plastic because vinyl chloride is used to make PVC, among other things. And there was concern, but it was considered to be a less risky alternative that additional materials, including phosgene and hydrogen chloride, would be byproducts of the burning. Um, but that was thought to be a lower risk than an explosion of the vinyl chloride uh, in the rail car. Since that time, there continue to be uh, various federal agencies and officials on site. They went through a number of days of emergency response and then slowly transitioned officially starting last week to the cleanup, the first part of which they call the removal stage. And that's really where we're in now. That's a pretty fast RIFS, isn't it? Yes, but they're, they're doing a removal rather than a long-term remediation. So for a long-term remediation, they, they would do the remedial study, the feasibility study, the remedial investigation. It's unclear if they're going to need a full Superfund treatment of this site and a long-term cleanup plan. My guess is that they're hoping if they can do a very thorough removal, since this material has not been on site a long time, as happens at other Superfund sites, that if they can do a very thorough removal, a long-term cleanup of the kind that you were referring to um, might not be necessary, but it's too early to tell about that. Let's talk a little bit about the removal before we move on. There have been some noises from neighboring governors saying, don't bring it into my state. So what's going to happen with the dirty dirt? So the removal started by allowing Norfolk Southern, which is a very solvent entity, has a lot of money, by allowing them to remove soil and also store on-site temporarily and then transport off-site contaminated groundwater. There were several streams and creeks nearby that were contaminated from the derailment, potentially contaminated from the burnoff, and also had some contamination from the lengthy firefighting efforts. Firefighting efforts use various chemicals that turn into runoff. From what I've read, there's been very little result testing. They haven't found anything when they've tested the groundwater, when they've tested the soil, when they've tested the air. From all intents and purposes, from what we've seen, there everything seems to be fine. That is kind of an interesting aspect to this. I think, in good faith, the government officials want to reassure the public about the safety of the area. But on the other hand, 
if they are removing this much soil and this much surface water, and it is a lot, my assessment as someone who's familiar with environmental issues and cleanups is that there is material that's contaminated. They have been testing the air in various parts of the town. They have been testing the drinking water, but the nearby creeks that are not a source of drinking water definitely have contamination. And that's been the source of some of the uh, liquid waste that they're removing. And I think it's safe to say the soils at the site of the derailment probably have contamination as well. And, and now at this point, some of the riparian soils around the streams have absorbed, I think, some of the contamination. And what happens is they slowly release it into the water. So it's not as if you can simply take the water out there that's there at the present and be done with it because some of those creek and river soils have absorbed some of the contamination and, and released some of it over time. If I can get back to a question you asked about the other states. So initially, Norfolk Southern sent some of the waste material, both soil and I believe liquid waste, to sites in hazardous waste treatment and storage and management sites, in one in Texas and one in Michigan. I'm not sure if the state officials were notified in those states. Clearly, the, the entities that were receiving it were, were on board. But they started to raise questions about why is this material coming to our state? So over last weekend, the U.S. EPA, which had not been directly involved in that removal, in, in tracking the removal, ordered Norfolk Southern to pause sending any material offsite till they could look into what sites were appropriate. Early this week, several sites in Ohio, and I believe one in Indiana, were identified by the EPA as sites that could be receiving the material. So as you might imagine, after that, some local residents near these Ohio sites started asking, aren't they just taking contamination from one part of the state and shipping it to another part of the state? And why are we receiving it? So that's been a little bit of a environmental contamination football, if you will. Right, well, let's talk about the release of vinyl chloride and its removal. You know, that we've seen videos of officials that have gone to the kitchens of some of the residents. It's a small town with 5,000 people. They've gone in and drink the tap water to prove that it's safe. But yet we have some physical impact from residents that are claiming that they're nauseous, they're vomiting, they've got rashes, and that they can smell. And from what I've read, too, the smell is even more precise than the environmental testing that's being done. So. Can you explain all of that? I don't know if I can fully explain it, but I can talk about it. The symptoms also include some respiratory problems. Some people are reporting having trouble breathing or some difficulty or soreness or pain when they're breathing. So in addition to the symptoms you mentioned, I suspect that from the vinyl chloride and perhaps from the another one of the major chemicals that was released, the butyl acrylate, that there are definitely some odors around. The EPA doesn't say there's no odors. The EPA says any detectable odors are below the level that we would consider unsafe. So there may be some odors, but they're not rising to the level of, of being unsafe. But they have at the same time, various uh, agencies, including uh, state officials, have set up health clinics, free health clinics for the residents to come in 
and have their system, symptoms assessed uh, and perhaps even get treatment. So I don't think they're ignoring it, but it does seem a little odd to say everything's safe and here's the health clinics for you people that are experiencing problems. Right. Well, David, at this time, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by David Rack. He's a professor of law at Ohio Northern University. We've been discussing the train wreck or derailment at East Palestine, Ohio. You know, we've just talked about what's going to happen with the removal of what's happened with people. Let's talk a little bit about what the government process is in terms of regulating this and then getting it removed. There's been some steps taken by the EPA in issuing some orders. Yes. So last Tuesday, that's eight days ago, the 21st, the EPA, this is the U.S. EPA, entered what's called a unilateral administrative order, which they're permitted to do under Section 106 of CERCLA. They can clean up uh, sites themselves, but when they have a major solvent party, often they prefer to order that party to clean up. Sometimes they'll do a settlement. This is a unilateral administrative order. This is not in court yet. It might be if enforcement is necessary. And pursuant to this order, Norfolk Southern is directed to do cleanup under EPA supervision. And I think also working with Ohio EPA and to some extent, Pennsylvania DEP. Department of Environmental Protection. This site is less than a mile from the Pennsylvania state line. Part of Pennsylvania was evacuated pursuant to the uh, decision to do the burnoff because they knew there would, the officials knew there would be some uh, certainly material in the air from that. So this unilateral administrative order uh, directs Norfolk Southern to come up with various work plans, safety plans, uh, monitoring plans soil and groundwater testing plans and so on, all subject to EPA approval, and then to carry out uh, a cleanup of the contamination. So now that the government's been involved and they've issued the orders, how's the process going to occur? Is there a public involvement? Do they get to comment on this? Is it would be typical in a circular remediation? So there, there is a provision in the order that specifies as part of it, 
that Norfolk Southern shall participate in community involvement activities, including community involvement in preparation of information for the work plan and so on. The beginning of the order also ordered Norfolk Southern to actually meet with community representatives or at community meetings as directed by the EPA. And I think one reason for that was because there was at least one community meeting where Norfolk Southern declined to attend, citing safety concerns. I'm not sure what they're worried about. I, I haven't seen the residents of East Palestine being anything more than vocal uh, in their concerns. But I think the residents felt that the railroad had not been as forthcoming as possible. So they're being required to uh, attend and participate in meetings as directed. Right. And since the residents are, are now involved with the public aspect of it, how is the, and the railroad has also been ordered to provide recompense to the uh, people that have been affected by it. How is that going to work? Well, Norfolk Southern at one point said it was setting up a fund to compensate people. I've seen a couple of different reports early on. I saw a report of a $1,000 inconvenience payment they were making to people who had to evacuate temporarily. In other words, their travel costs, their stay at hotels elsewhere and things like that. Legally, CERCLA doesn't directly provide for payment by uh, of claims by private parties against a party responsible for the contamination or, or claims for loss of business or property damage. Norfolk Southern certainly can do that. I have heard some of our listeners in the legal field may be interested that there have been law firms advising local residents, perhaps offering to represent them, saying that they need to be careful before they accept any payments at this point for fear that those might be deemed releases of future claims. How does that aspect work in Ohio? Here in California, it's, that re was repealed a number of years ago, that accepting money is not a settlement of a debt. What's the law in Ohio? I think that it would not be unless you sign something or that was very clear and conspicuous in terms of the whole process that you were releasing claims. And I don't think Norfolk Southern, at this point, they've already had enough bad publicity. I don't think they're going to try to do that. It might simply be a bit of overcaution on the part of plaintiff's lawyers who are sometimes skeptical of any voluntary payments from defendants. Right. Well, there's already been a class action lawsuit or so filed, correct? There have been a number of claims filed. I, I'm not sure if they're a class action. I think they probably will end up that way, either by court order or by the plaintiff's attorneys uh, agreeing to it. A recent, uh, well, a few years ago, environmental disaster in the Gulf, the Gulf oil spill involved a whole lot of claims against BP, and those ended up in class actions. So this would not surprise me if there were one here as well, one or more. Well, David, it's time for us to take another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went... 
to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm back with David Rack. We've been discussing the East Palestine train wreck. I guess I can really call it a derailment, a train wreck. Let's talk about cause and effect and perhaps prevention. You uh, wrote an article a little bit about that and uh, had something to say also about partisan politics. Yes. Yeah, so in terms of cause and effect, uh, another federal agent here, agency here, um, the, the NTSB, released a preliminary uh, report of a preliminary investigation. While they didn't say a lot, they said what most people already uh, either suspected or knew, and that is it, it looked like there was a faulty axle or, I think more specifically, a faulty wheel bearing on one of the cars. Some of the monitoring devices ahead of the derailment uh, had noticed some temperature increases, and even there was some video of spark sparking underneath one of the cars. The NTSB, as you might imagine, has taken is taking possession of uh, that car and the other derailed cars for further study. But it looks likely that the problems there, the physical problems there, and the fact that the, the train didn't stop when they were first noticed is going to be the focus of, uh, of the cause of the derailment. You think there's human error involved here or lack of observation? I, I think reading that preliminary NTSB report that Norfolk Southern set up sort of trigger levels, like first warning, but you don't have to stop, second warning, but you need to start looking carefully, and third warning that you have to stop. And, and I think those levels were not set as sufficiently protective of public safety or of the potential for derailment. I think what we're like to, like to see in the future is some measures addressed to that and other railroad safety measures particularly for the cars that carry hazardous materials. Let's talk about some of those uh, hazardous materials transport regulations that were repealed several years ago. Did those, that repeal have any effect or allowed this to happen in any way? Well, my understanding is that there were measures that were slated to go into effect for increased braking safety requirements, but that the Trump administration decided not to put those into effect after there had been some lobbying, to be honest, uh, by the railroads. And so they didn't go into effect. I'm not sure if the braking, if better brakes would have prevented this derailment or not. It's a bit unclear. One thing that the state of Ohio has been concerned about and its governor is sort of a transparency measure. And that is if the railroads under current law, if a particular train has only a more limited number, I think less than a majority of the cars carrying hazardous materials, they do not have to notify the state or the local state officials or local residents of the train and where it's going and what it's carrying. And Governor DeWine of Ohio has has called for a change in those regulations so that railroads do have to share that information with the state and uh, hopefully with the residents as well. We see it would be something simple like pilots have to do to file a flight plan and have that information publicly available so that people know what's happening. And would that be a simple solution? Yeah, I think it would be. And I think you're likely to see a lot of calls for it after this, because prior to this derailment, I think a lot of people would see trains in their neighborhood or trains near where they live 
and not think too much about it. You know, it's just train going by and there's train cars. Now, at least in Ohio, when people see a train and particularly a train near where they live, they're starting to think, I wonder what it's carrying. And I wonder if I'm at risk if there's a derailment. So I think sharing that information would be a very useful measure. Are there existing evacuation plans and types of how do we handle a train derailment when they occur? So I think in a lot of places, there are more general emergency preparedness plans. But I think most places don't have specific plans for train derailment evacuations. And and that's another area that I think you might see more uh, activity on in the near future. Should trains be carrying so many cars that carry uh, vinyl chloride? I know recently there was another derailment, I believe, in Florida where a propane tank tipped over. And I'm not sure how many tanks were on that car, but should should we limit the number of hazardous waste or hazardous materials cars being shipped in one train? That's a that's a tough question to answer. I think with improved safety measures, we can hopefully reduce the chance of derailment. Some people have said, well, let's not have hazardous material transported at all by by trains. I think that's not a good solution because then it means either by air or by truck and they're not going to go by air. And trucks to be perfectly honest, per mile of transport, don't have a better record than railroads. Railroads have a better record in terms of safety. I think the suggestion of having a limited number makes sense, but here there were only 11 cars out of a a train that was very long, I think over 100 cars. So I'm, I'm not sure that would have precluded the contamination that we see from this derailment. Well, in one sense, it's also due to the way that the trains are spaced and the consist is made where they could be separated, where, you know, one derailment generally doesn't occur through the entire length of the train. It occurs just in a part of it. That would make sense. Yes. So I've read, too, that there's been now a criminal referral to the Pennsylvania attorney general arising out of this. Are you familiar with that? I, I heard that. I have not seen the details of it. And so I can't can't comment on the details of it. I think it's a reflection of public fears and public concerns and a governmental response to it. Whether Norfolk Southern is is criminally guilty here is something that I think will take a little more time to determine exactly what happened and what they might have done to prevent this. But I don't think it's terribly surprising, given the the depth of um, public concern, we might say some public outrage. Right. You know, in an article I referred to earlier that you wrote, uh, you mentioned that environmental toxins do not care whether one is a Democrat or Republican or an independent. How do you think partisan politics are playing a role in this disaster? Well, the, the one thing we mentioned already in terms of different governmental, different, I should say, presidential administrations, safety emphases can be involved. But I think what we're seeing more of now is some finger pointing, some blaming after the fact. And obviously, as someone who's interested in environmental uh, health and safety, I'm more focused on what's needed for a cleanup, what's needed to protect public health. But in today's political world, when there's a major issue like this, I think you're going to see people from different parties, people from different perspectives start trying to blame each other. I have heard, and I think we may see this, that both the Senate and the House are contemplating, uh, in Congress, U.S. Congress, are contemplating uh, investigations of this train derailment. I'd be nice if they were able to get more information out, 
I do think you will see some political finger pointing and posturing if uh, if those investigations take place. Right. Well, I read recently and maybe even just today that your two Ohio senators have introduced bipartisan bills to try and address these issues. Yes, that's true. So, you know, they're responding to this very reasonable concern about the health and safety and contamination that occurred. Well, David, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so I'd like to give this opportunity to you to share your final thoughts and provide your contact information for our listeners to reach out to you if they'd like. Oh, thanks, Craig. In terms of final thoughts, I I think this is going to stay in the news for a while. People are wondering what's going to happen in this area. Is it another Love Canal? Is, is it another major disaster? Will there be long-term health effects? And so I, I think that's going to be, those are going to be issues that people are going to be paying attention to. And they're going to be looking very carefully at how Norfolk Southern responds and how the government agencies carry out their oversight functions. I'm at Ohio Northern University, professor of law at the law school there. My email is d-rack, R-A-A-C-K, at onu.edu. If anyone wants to contact me, I'd be happy to talk to them about this. Well, David, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Craig. Well, here's a few of my thoughts about today's topic. It's certainly a disaster that has frightened the people in the area. It is surprising to, I think, both David and to me that uh, the test results show no impact, yet residents are saying that they've got a scent of it, a smell of it, as well as physical effects from it. Only time will tell. Lino chloride has a long half-life, and this will be around for a long, long time. Hopefully, the two senators from Ohio are introducing some regulations that will stop these kind of derailments from happening as frequently, but we have little choice on how to transport these things, and we just need to make better choices when we do. It's a mess out there. Well, that's it for Craig's rant on today's topic. Let me know what you think. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.